This is a crazy time we live in. I was watching the crazes and fads going on in our country. You've seen the one where it makes so much sense. People jump out of moving cars and dance in the, in the street before a car hits them. What were people thinking? It's interesting, though, that I, as I saw that, I was thinking back there are sort of fads like that in Christianity sometimes, too. I remember if we're really going back to like the 70s, I remember the, the fad, the craze was honk if you love Jesus, bumper stickers on your car. So I thought that sounded kind of cool. I put a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on my car and sort of forgot I had it there. You know, the next day all these people are honking at me. I can't figure out my turn signal on or what the problem was. Um, I took the bumper sticker off and actually Jesus didn't want to be identified with my driving anyway. So it's probably, probably a good thing. And then a lot of you will probably remember the, you know, WWJD. What did that stand for? Yeah, what would Jesus do? We all wore bracelets with those initials on it. What would Jesus do? You know, in a way, uh, that, was, that was a meaningful kind of uh, fad for a lot of people. I mean, we want to be like Jesus, right? We want to make decisions like Jesus would make decisions. We want to have his kind of mentality, his view of life. Um, so maybe that's not such a bad question to ask ourselves. What would, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus live? And I think our goal ought to be, if we're a follower of Jesus, that we do want to become like him. You know, the servant wants to become like the master. The student wants to become like the teacher. And Jesus is our master and our teacher. So um, there's actually a place in the Bible that tells us how that process, part of that process takes place. And it may surprise you. This is actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let me read it to you. It says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I don't know if that made much sense to you, but what, what Paul is saying here is that one of the ways that we are transformed in the image of Jesus is by contemplating, by thinking about, by understanding the glory of Jesus that the more we understand Jesus in his glory, that aspect of him, the more God's spirit is able to kind of transform us and to make us like him. So I thought that would be a good thing for us to do today. We're going to contemplate, we're going to think about the glory of Jesus, and we're going to center it on an event in Jesus' life where that glory is revealed and how that affected Jesus, why that was so important to him and to his disciples, and ultimately to us as well. So let's begin by thinking about the glory of Jesus. Maybe the most important thing you can know about Jesus, this fundamental truth about him, is that Jesus was the incarnation, the human flesh of the eternal Son of God. We believe that God exists eternally, right? As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, that part of God that, is, that we call the Son, became the human being, Jesus. So when we think about Jesus, we think not just about his earthly existence, but we think about the fact that Jesus existed always before that as the eternal Son of God. And as such... He was in an eternal existence of absolute glory, total perfection, 
majesty, power, holiness, and glory. In fact, maybe a good way to think about the glory of Jesus is to think of it as sort of the physical manifestation of his, of his perfection, his moral purity, his absolute power and knowledge and might, all those great things that we believe about God are true about God the Son, and therefore they're true about Jesus, who was that God becoming human flesh. So when you're reading in the Bible, when you're reading in the Old Testament, and it talks about the glory of God, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Son of God who became Jesus, the baby in Bethlehem. Jesus who became the man dying on the cross for us. That's who it's talking to, who it's referring to. So when we read about God as being the creator who brought all things into existence, the Bible even says, you know, it was created by him and for him, talking about Jesus. The glory of the universe is the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. He is a God of absolute might and glory and power. And when, when we see these descriptions of the glory of God in the Old Testament, I want you to be able to think, it's talking about Jesus. And that when we see the life of Jesus, you know, with walking the dusty roads in Galilee and hugging the, the untouchable leper and calming the sea, that that Jesus is that eternal God who has always existed in glory. A couple of my favorite episodes in the Old Testament really talk about the glory of God. And for some reason, these two just move me deeply. One of them takes place uh, when about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus the man. And God has brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to this land that he's promised to them, the land of Israel, land flowing with milk and honey. And now God has, uh, has come to the place where God is going to dwell among them. And so he's instructed Solomon, who is the king, to build the temple in Jerusalem. And years were spent bringing together the finest artisans in the world, the finest materials, the, the gold and silver, the, the cedars of Lebanon, bringing together and building this incredible building on this, on this mountain in Jerusalem. And now it's time to dedicate this temple to the Lord. It's time for the dedication and God calls together all of Israel, and an amazing thing happens. So I want, I want to read it to you. Listen to this. See if you can picture what's going on. It says, Then Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of Israel's families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. You got that now? The temple is ready, and now they're going to bring to it all of these things that had been in the tabernacle before, particularly the Ark of the Covenant, this gold-plated box that represented the presence of God. And all the Israelites came together to King Solomon at that time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the Ark, and they brought the Ark of the Lord into the tent of meeting. 
and all the sacred furnishings in it. And the priests and the Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or numbered. And the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And they put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. And the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark. And when the priest withdrew from the holy place, get this, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priest could not perform their service because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I just picture that in my mind. You know, finally, this time has come where the temple has been built, and God says, I'm going to dwell among you there in that place. And they come together as a nation. The people of God is chosen people, and they offer so many sacrifices to God. It's beyond counting, beyond recording. And they bring this incredible symbol of the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and they place it in that little room, the, the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And then they back away. And when they back away, the, the visible manifestation of the glory of God, it's called the Shekinah glory, comes down from heaven and it fills the temple. And it is so overpowering that the people who are there, they fall on their faces in awe and wonder that this glorious God of creation, the God of the universe, had chosen to dwell among them. And the priests can't even go into the temple to offer more sacrifices because they are overwhelmed by this manifestation of the glory of God. That was Jesus. That was Jesus there that day before he was born as a man a thousand years later. We had an experience kind of like that at Orchard. Not exactly, but when, when we dedicated our sanctuary back in 1990, and all of the furnishings from, from the sanctuary were in the old part, what's now the commons, and we gathered together in the sanctuary, and it was just overflowing all the people together. And we had this procession, and people carried in the the communion table and the big Bible that goes on the communion table and the baptismal fount in procession. And the people stood and the organ played and it was a holy moment. Jesus was there in his glory. And when you read about the glory of God, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. The other incident in the Old Testament that always moves me when I read it is the experience of the prophet Isaiah. So again, we're talking like 500 years before the birth of Jesus the man. And Isaiah, who is this young priest in Jerusalem, has this vision. And he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You know, even that is significant, the train of his robe. It's not talking about a train like a choo-choo. It's talking about the train of his robe, like, like Princess Diana, you know, or Princess Kate going in to be married, and the long train coming behind them, you know, and carried by all these other people, you know. God is so important, majestic, that his train is so long it fills the temple, 
It says above him stood the seraphim, these incredible angelic beings. I think if we even saw them, you know, we would fall down on our faces before them. And they had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Who did Isaiah see that day? He saw Jesus in his glory. He saw God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there. And his his glory was so great that the sound of the voice of those who called shook the foundations of the building. And Isaiah thought he was going to die. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of God. That's Jesus. Now, hundreds of years later, that glorious son of God becomes a baby born in in Bethlehem. He grows to be a man, and he's come for one primary purpose, to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And so the Bible says that Jesus steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop him because he knows what he's got to do there. And even though people warn him not to go, Jesus is determined he's going to go and he's going to give his life. He knows he's going to be tortured and sacrificed and killed, but he's determined to go. Reminds me of one of my favorite movies from the 80s, Starman. Did you ever see? I love science fiction movies. This was a very young Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen. He's an alien, comes to Earth, and he's got to get to this place where the mothership is going to come and pick him up you know, and take him back to his home planet. And he's got to get there before he dies. He's dying as he's get going there, you know. It's a little like Jesus, I think, except that Jesus says, I'm going to go there, and I, that's why I'm going, because I'm going to die there. And so on the way there, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter and James and John, and he goes with them onto the top of a mountain. Don't think like Pike's Peak, but, you know, like a, like a high place there in Israel. And there on that place, an incredible thing happens. The glory of Jesus is revealed. Let me read you the account of that in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 17, first nine verses. verses. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and the brother of James, John and the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son. I had to sound like God at that. This is my son. Because this is the voice of God. This is my son whom I love. And with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one there except Jesus 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, and I think sometimes we think that wasn't such a hard thing for him to do. I think it was incredibly hard. You know, I think about times when I have visited with many of you when you're facing something really, a surgery even, you know, you're going to have your hip replaced or something, you know, and you dread having to go through it. Jesus understands exactly what's going to happen to him, and he dreads it. He dreads it, and he's afraid of it. He would do anything not to have to go through it, but he is determined. He sets his face, and how hard that must have been for him. And so God gives him this incredible experience on this mountain. We call the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, changing of his body. And what happens there? For just a moment, the glory of Jesus breaks forth. I can't prove it from the Bible, but I just have a feeling that this glory that Jesus held in all the time was just longing to break out. Do something for me now. I want you all, if you would please, to take a deep breath and hold it. Go, <gasps> now keep holding it. I'm going to keep talking, but you keep holding it, all right? And here's the glory of Jesus, this glory that he has known from all eternity, the glory of creation, the glory of being worshipped by, by tens of thousands times 10,000 angels, the glory of this eternal, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing God held inside this human body. Anybody still holding it? <laughs> you know? And just like after you've held your breath for that long and you finally... You know, it just kind of bursts forth. It seems to me like it just, for that brief moment, this glory of Jesus that's been held inside from just breaks forth. Just breaks forth. And did you catch the description of it? I mean, let me read it to you again. It says, His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. He's transformed there before him, and the glory of him breaks forth. This John, one of the disciples who's there seeing this, later on, 50 years later, the end of his life, he's been exiled on this barren island called Patmos, you know, and God gives him a vision again of Jesus. And here's what he writes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, he gets this vision of of the Son of God. And it says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That, that glorious Son of God who glows and radiates, his hair is white. It doesn't mean his hair turned gray. I mean, it's glowing. His face is like the sun. His eyes are burning coals. His feet are like the, like the metal, you know, the liquid gold. And he stands before John in this vision. That son of God, that glorious, indescribable son of God, that is Jesus. That is the Jesus that they glimpsed briefly on that Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Jesus just sort of breaks forth. I just have the feeling Jesus says, whew, that feels so good. You know? 
suddenly the glory, I'm just able to let it out. And two other things happen there on that Mount of Transfiguration. The first is that two guys from the Old Testament appear there with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Now here's here's a question for you. Had Jesus ever met Moses and Elijah before? Trick question, kind of. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, created Moses and Elijah. Was Jesus who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, was Jesus who was there with Elijah on Mount Carmel as he defeated the forces of the pagan god Baal? You know? Yeah, Jesus knew them. You know? Jesus was there at the gates of heaven to welcome them home and to say to them, well done, good and faithful servants, come and enter into the joy of your Lord. I think in heaven they had been Jesus' best buddies, you know. And for 500 years, more than that even with Moses, you know, they had spent time together in heaven and eternity. And now Jesus is approaching that dreaded, terrible moment when he'll be arrested and tortured and crucified and die. And God sends his two buddies there to be with him. And Moses and Elijah are also symbolic of something so important. Remember often in the Bible when it talks about the Old Testament, it calls it the law and the prophets. In a sense, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. That's the, that's the Old Testament. Moses, the great lawgiver, you know, through whom God gave the Ten Commandments, the instructions about Israel, and through Moses to us as well, how people ought to live, the commands of God. It was through Moses that God instituted the sacrificial system because none of us keep the commands of God perfectly. And God says through the shedding of blood, you know, our sins can be forgiven and what happened then? Eventually, all of, all of those things that Moses brought into being were fulfilled in Jesus. Remember, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you know, never think that I've come to, to, to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills all of those law commandments that God had given to us by becoming the perfect sacrifice the blood payment for our sins. And Elijah, this fiery prophet who confronts evil and Satan on Mount Carmel, you know, when the, when the hundreds of priests of Baal come and they have this standoff to bring fire from heaven and the priest of Baal can't do it. And Elijah builds that altar, remember, and covers it with water, and then he prays, God, show your power and your glory, and fire comes down and consumes the altar. And that battle between God and Satan that's gone on from the beginning, from the, from the Garden of Eden, you know, is going to come to fruition when that final battle is fought on the cross at Calvary, when Jesus, the glorious Son of God, gives his life. And it's all going to be fulfilled through Jesus. And to have those guys there to encourage him must have been an amazing thing for Jesus. And then something else happens. There's a voice from heaven, the voice of God. When you think about it, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, has spent eternity in this relationship that's beyond our understanding of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. And now, from the time of his becoming a human being, the baby in Bethlehem, there's been that separation between Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that must have seemed really strange to him. 
And when Jesus grows to be a man and is beginning this journey that's going to lead to Calvary, remember at the time of his baptism, a voice, the voice of God, spoke from heaven and said, this is, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And now as Jesus approaches those final days, God again says, you are my son. I love you so much. I am so proud of you. Did you ever have that moment in your life, you know, when your dad or your mom put their hand on your shoulder and said, son, daughter, I love you. I'm so proud of who you are, you know. How much that must have meant to Jesus. And then in an instant, it's gone. Jesus is again the man with, with dusty feet and calloused hands. And Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain and Jesus determined more than ever to see it through to the end, to go to his death at Calvary. Now, that was an important event for Jesus when his glory breaks forth. And I think it was really an important event for the disciples as well. I mean, think about, we think about Jesus' suffering, but imagine the suffering of his disciples as well. It wasn't too long before this that Peter had said, you know, we believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And now they see that Jesus hanging on a cross, dying, you know, being crucified. Surely they doubted. Surely it was so hard to believe. How could they have been so wrong believing that Jesus was, was God himself? Now he's dying on the cross. But in that black night, you know, in that time of darkness and doubt, what did they think of? I think they remembered the glory. I think Peter must have thought back to that moment on the mountain when they saw the glory of Jesus break forth. And I think it's significant for us as well. Because I think there are going to be times in your life as a follower of Jesus when you are going to be tempted to doubt. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this Christianity stuff isn't true. Maybe Jesus isn't really who I thought he was. You know? In that moment, you know, I would call upon you to remember the glory I had an experience like that. I've told you about it before. It, uh, it saved my life spiritually. I was 19 years old, just finished my freshman year in college, and my faith had been utterly destroyed. I mean, I'd gone to a Christian college and took the required introductory religion class where I learned what I hadn't known before, that the Bible is not historically accurate, that it's full of lies and fables and misconceptions, that it can't be trusted, that uh, Christianity is much different than the kind of belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the desire to follow him. And it, and how could I have been so wrong? How could my parents have been so wrong? How could the church I was a part of have been so wrong? And I remember uh, one night that summer, lying in bed, and that was, that was really a crisis for me. I mean, I was just sick at my stomach that I could have been so wrong about this and crying out to God, saying, Jesus, boy, if you are real, if you are real, some, please do something to restore my faith. And as I prayed that, this light appeared in my room. This sounds so weird. 
this light appeared in my room and it was kind of human shaped. I compared it to, to, to Star Trek, you know, where they're beaming somebody up and you know, the thing. And I knew, I knew it was Jesus in his glory. And it overwhelmed me and I couldn't look at it. And I turned away and I said, I'm sorry, I doubted. Forgive me. You're going to go through times of doubt if you haven't already. You know, maybe you're living in one of those times of doubt right now. How, how could this amazing stuff that we read about in the Bible that the church teaches, how could that be true? I just want to encourage you today to, to remember the mountain, to remember the glory of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, we're out of time. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Jesus. You know, sometimes uh, because you seem so approachable and real as, as Jesus a man, as we read about you in, in the Gospels, it, we almost forget uh, that you are this glorious being you know, who has existed eternally. And, and there are times in our lives, and maybe today is one of them, when we need, we need to remember the glory we need to be there with Peter and James and John to see that glory burst forth and to know that you are the glorious Son of God. And so as much as we are able to in this moment, we worship you. Thank you for your love for us, that deep, deep love that motivated you to go to the cross for us. We love you. 